Okay, so either there's a major traffic jam someplace, or everybody took a long, <laughs> took an extra long break, so or taking an extra long break. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. We have a quiz that is available. I know about half the class has done it, and that's available, I say, through today. Again, today means 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, so if you're working and you want to take it at 2 in the morning, just don't wait till 6.05 because it does automatically cut off at 6. But, so if you're planning on getting up early, make sure you got like 10 alarms set to take it, so you make sure you get it. Yeah? I saw that you could actually do it, like you could attempt to do it twice. I think, did I do that on this? I'm trying to remember if I did that for you. Maybe I may have on this one. I did? Which grade? It'll take the highest grade. I think what I did is the other class, I was doing it differently. My other class, I gave them a little bit more time, but they only get one attempt. So, so I guess I did do that differently on this one. So I'll check what I did for the others because I want to be consistent from quiz to quiz so you're not getting... You know, I get 30 minutes, but only one of you know, it's, it's nice to know what you're going to get going into a quiz. So if it's two attempts on it, then remind me if the next one, I'll look at them, but if the next one doesn't, someone doesn't say two attempts, someone email me when they first look at it, and I'll add it so it can do a second attempt on it. So I'll be consistent on it for you at least. All right, so that quiz is up and available. The first exam is going to be Friday. That'll cover chapters 0 and 1. And whatever of two we get through today, the little bit of two we've covered, plus anything else we get through, whatever we get through of it today. So I'll cut it off there and I'll let you know exactly where, we, where we're going to stop when we're done today. Homework two is due next Friday. It was up on D2L. I have copies of it here for you as well. Um, you might want to look at questions, depending on exactly how far we get, the first five questions might be worth looking at before the exam because that's material that is actually covered on this exam. The rest of the material is no reason to look at questions, you know, six through ten or definitely on telescopes and stuff that we'll be covering after, we'll be covering next week. So, you go, sir. And, sir. All right. So you may want to take a look at those for especially one, two, three. You're, we're not going to get to number four. I can tell you that we won't get. That would require me getting through the rest of the entire rest of the chapter, and I don't see it happening. So certainly questions one, two, and three hopefully will be useful. Perhaps number five, but four is the very end of this chapter, and we're not. I'm not going to get through get through that today. And then first set of solar observations. Again, anything you've observed is due next Friday. Again, just photocopy that or write them on a separate sheet of paper. Again, just date, time, sky conditions, height of object, length of shadow is all I need. And I'll take a look at them and give them back to you the following week. And then quiz two, which will cover chapters two and three for this class, will be available starting next Friday again. And it'll be available not quite as long this time. I give you Friday through Monday, meaning Tuesday morning. So you'll have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I'll remind you again on Monday in case you forgot and you take the, can take the quiz then. So you'll have that will be available as well, and that's, that's coming up. So um, homeworks are almost completely graded, so I will have those back for you Friday. And I've got just a couple more. I think I have to grade just the last two or three questions on it. I grade them question by question. I've got the like, last two or three to do. And I'll have, I'll have those back for you on Friday as well. And then, as I think I mentioned last time, we'll do lab on, I'll do the lab on Friday. 
for our lab period, we'll do the lab period first at 9 o'clock. And then we'll do the exam later. As I said, there are people who finish them in 20 or 25 minutes, and then you're done. So if you don't have anything else other than this class, you're done for the day, or you're done at least with this class and can head out. And I'll be looking at getting you an exam. I'll be getting a, we're doing a lab earlier, depending on whether they've gotten all the computers set up with the proper program so we can do it, or I'll do a different, I have a couple other labs that we can do. So I have a couple different things that we can do depending exactly on how things are, how things set up. So that's what's coming up. Questions? No? No? All right. Picture of the day for today. I'm going to go ahead and turn the other light off so you can see this a little bit better for a minute here. This is actually what they call the air glow. And you can see the horizon there, right at the bottom. That kind of U shape is the horizon taken with the very wide angle camera lens. Sort of get the whole view of the whole horizon in here. You can see the clouds up here. That's just regular, ordinary clouds. And then you see sort of this greenish haze that fills the rest of the, fills part of the rest of the screen. And that's what is called the air glow. Air glow is the atmosphere, is just glowing atoms in the atmosphere that have been excited by something. In this case, they're excited by radiation coming from the sun. So ultraviolet radiation, higher energy radiation from the sun comes, strikes the Earth's atmosphere and causes it to glow. Now you may have seen other images of the aurora, which look kind of similar to this, except that the green is much more intense. The process by which they form is the same. It's exciting those atoms and causing them to glow in the green portion of the spectrum. But What's, what's doing the exciting is what's different. This is just a general ultraviolet radiation from the sun, so it's coming all the time, it's always there. The aurora are intense particles from the sun, so they occur more, in, more strongly when there is a solar flare, something that's sending extra particles to the earth and causing it to glow, and you'll get a much more intense um, glow. But the same type, of, the same greenish color that, you, that you'll see. You can also see in here the Milky Way galaxy, our own galaxy, going from top to bottom towards the right-hand side right about here. That's actually our own Milky Way galaxy. And as, as we view it from the inside, and we'll look a little bit more about that later on. And the nice thing about some of the images like this is that they're set up that if you put the mouse over them, you can actually identify other things. So. M31 is the Andromeda galaxy. That's the nearest real large galaxy to our own, another spiral galaxy like ours, so a spiral galaxy like the Milky Way, except that instead of being within it, this is actually 2 million light years away. And you also have the big and little dippers kind of highlighted there just to give you a sense of perspective as to where everything is. There's the Big Dipper and Little Dipper up there, Polaris, the North Star, and did get a nice streak of an airplane that happened to be flying through the image while it was being, while it was being taken. So you actually have part of an image of an airplane there that's glowing a little bit on it as well. So something a little bit different there. I mean, you may have seen pictures of the aurora before, which looks similar. This is the sky glow, which is kind of a less intense but always present version of something very similar. Give you some, give you some light back. Questions. Before we jump back to chapter two. No, 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 okay. All right, chapter two, we were looking at this last time. And we've been talking about waves, and this we've just given you a little bit about 
magnetic fields and we'll look at this in more detail later on. But the magnetic field, this is the magnetic field of the Earth and as I just mentioned aurora in our picture of the day, that kind of focuses everything in terms of the aurora. Those charged particles that excite the atmosphere, well charged particles don't go through the magnetic field lines, they follow along them. So things with an electrical charge will actually follow them so as those particles come from the sun instead of striking the earth directly they get funneled around towards the north magnetic and south magnetic poles and then excite the atmosphere there. That's why we see the northern lights here or especially much further north from here or the southern lights down in the southern hemisphere. That's just where those particles are reaching the earth's atmosphere and causing it to glow. And you'd see that same type of greenish glow that we see as we saw in the air glow just a, just a minute ago. So that was where we finished up and we were, say we were working on waves. One more on electromagnetic waves and again I'm not going into great detail. You can go into a lot of math with these and a lot of details to try to explain how electromagnetic waves work. I've been trying to just give you a basic idea of what is happening here. And really what an electromagnetic wave is, is you have a magnetic field and an electric field gives us an electromagnetic wave. It has an electric field which oscillates in one direction just like a regular wave as we looked at the water waves and everything else and a magnetic field that works perpendicular to that and gets stronger and weaker. And what you have is that when a magnetic field is changing, so it's changing in intensity here, it generates an electric field so as this is changing it generates the electric field and the electric then stops changing and then here and now the electric field is changing and generates a magnetic field. So it just keeps building on itself. So the electric field generates a magnetic field which generates an electric field and just keeps it moving through space. So there's nothing that it's actually traveling through. It is self-propagating. It is making its, it is moving itself through space. It doesn't need an atmosphere to travel through. It doesn't need, you know, a metal, a solid. It doesn't need a liquid. As you know, sound waves can travel through solids and liquids and gases. Elect electromagnetic waves don't need anything. They can travel through the vacuum of space, whereas sound waves or water waves or any other kind of waves cannot. It's just the electromagnetic waves that actually can travel through the vacuum of space. And again, quite fortunate since there is nothing out there in space, for the most part it's quite empty, that we can actually see, we'd actually be able to see things. If not, any image, anything outside of our atmosphere, we'd never be able to see. The sunlight wouldn't get to us, moonlight wouldn't get to us, the light of the stars wouldn't get to us. We wouldn't be able to see anything if the electromagnetic waves were not able to travel through the vacuum. Now, we break things up and there's the colors of the rainbow. If you shine white light through a prism, breaks it all up and you get red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. So you split it up into the visible part of the visible spectrum. That's what we're used to when, we, when, a, when you generally talk about light. That's what most people are thinking of. You know, the colors of the rainbow, that is light. To the scientist or the astronomer, there's a lot more than that. That's only a very tiny portion of the spectrum. So as you see here, there's one portion of it is visible, but there are other parts of the spectrum which are electromagnetic waves, just like light, but of different energies, of either higher energies on the right-hand side or lower energies on the left-hand side. These just happen to be the ones, this is where the sun emits most of it, its light. 
So these are where our eyes happen to be sensitive. But if you go further beyond the red, you have infrared radiation and you have radio radiation. They're exactly the same type of wave. Exactly the same type, they're just much lower energy. Longer wavelengths and lower energy. So you can imagine, remember that the reds and violets we're talking about, you're talking nanometers, so billionths of a meter. You can get up to things in the radio wave where you can get wavelengths that are centimeters long, you know, two, four centimeters wavelengths, you know. Or one common one is actually 21 centimeters, so 21 centimeters would be about, eh, about that long wavelength. And there's even longer ones at that. You can get meter long wavelengths or even longer when you go out into the radio part of the spectrum. So extremely long radio, extremely long wavelengths require, as we'll look at in the next chapter, big telescopes to be able to pick up those wavelengths. When you go in the other direction, you're going towards shorter wavelengths. Shorter wavelengths give you a higher energy. So you go from violet into ultraviolet much more intense, more energetic than the, than the visible light, and beyond that into x-rays and gamma rays. But again, each of these is exactly the same portion, exactly the same type of radiation. So exactly the same kind. So they're all formed, they all move the same way, they're all electric and magnetic fields oscillating as we looked at in the previous slide. It's all, this, this is exactly how each of those work. In radio waves, Okay, this would be about to scale for a radio wave, right? You got a few centimeters, a few you know, apart. Reasonable. And if you're looking at visible light, they'd just be compacted down closer. The wavelengths would be shorter and shorter. Everything would be closer and closer together. For gamma rays, they'd be even more closely packed together. But it's the same process that creates, that is, that is both of them. It just depends on the energy. Now, this diagram here is not really good. It's not to scale. It doesn't quite give you the perspective as how little of the electromagnetic spectrum is visible light. And the next one does a little bit better here. There's our visible light. We've got to expand it out there to see it. You can see it kind of hiding in the middle there. There's our visible light. But in order to get them a little bit better scale, there's the radio which stretches out as long wavelengths as you can possibly imagine. You know, I talked about things that are, you know, centimeters to meters long, but there's no reason that it stops. There's no reason that you can only have one that's 25 meters long, but not 25.1. They can extend out forever. So you could have ones that are the size of mountains, size of planets. You could go out to radio waves of very, very low energy that go out that far. Same on the other, ex other extreme. The, uh, you go to infrared and radio there, you go to ultraviolet, x-rays, and gamma rays on the other direction. The wavelengths just get shorter and shorter. And again, there's no ending to it. There's not where you say there's one wavelength, but you can't go a little bit smaller. It would just be a little bit higher energy. But when you talk about things like x-rays, you're talking about, you know, atomic-sized wavelengths. So very, very small. But it gives you a much better scale of how little of the electromagnetic spectrum we're used to being able to study. It's just that very tiny portion in the visible and for astronomy that was done for many thousands and thousands of years, that's the only part of the spectrum that was looked at. Until the 1930s or so, and even more significantly in the 1950s, that was the only part, the only way we, would, we could study anything in the sky. So the only way we could study the sun, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, 
was only using visible light. You can see how limited we were. It's a very tiny portion. It's a very tiny portion of the spectrum there. Very tiny portion, that's all that we could see. Now, with newer technology, we can actually study stars in the infrared, in the ultraviolet, in radio, in x-rays, in gamma rays, and we can learn a lot more and we've actually discovered objects that are much brighter and emit much more of their energy in some of these other wavelengths. So we're learning even about new objects, even new different types of objects. Now the other thing that I wanted to point out here is this nice strip across the bottom gives you what the atmosphere lets through, what our atmosphere lets down to the surface of the Earth. Any part where it's that dark blue there, our atmosphere blocks out that radiation. Meaning that gamma rays do not come through. We cannot observe gamma rays. I can't put a gamma ray telescope out in the courtyard and show you an image of gamma rays. Probably a good thing because you really don't want to be constantly bombarded by gamma rays from space. So the fact that our atmosphere blocks all those out is real good from a human perspective. Bad from an astronomical perspective because we want to be able to see them. You know, we want to study them, but we have to put things up into space to see those. But gamma rays, x-rays, you know, you don't want to constantly be being x-rayed. So all that is blocked out. A lot of the ultraviolet is blocked out. A little bit towards the edge gets in, but most of the worst of the ultraviolet does get blocked out by the atmosphere. Then there's what we call the optical window. So there's the visible light. Visible light does come straight through. Infrared, some of it does, and some little bit. You can see it's kind of jagged there. Some of the infrared gets in, some doesn't, and we'll look about that a little bit more uh, later on as to what, you know, what we're able to get through. The, what we call the far infrared, and I should say for infrared and ultraviolet, they're called near and far. Near means they're close to the visible part of the spectrum. So near infrared is those wavelengths of infrared light that are just beyond what you can see. Near ultraviolet are those wavelengths of the visible light that are again, just beyond the violet. So they're sort of on opposite directions that near is on one side on ultraviolet and it's the other side on the infrared. Near just means close to the visible portion of the spectrum. But the near infrared, some of that gets through. Most of the far infrared is blocked out. The, radi the radio waves, a big chunk of the radio waves do get through. But once you get down to the really long wavelengths, they're all blocked out. So those don't get through the atmosphere as well. All right. So, ah, I know. So again, I've gone through a little bit of this, but really the atmosphere only lets us through about the visible light. That all gets through. Some of the infrared depends on exactly where you are in the Earth and some other things that I'll go over later on and part of the radio spectrum. The atmosphere wipes out everything else. Good, right? We don't want to be constantly bombarded by gamma rays and x-rays from space. That would not be a pleasant, a pleasant thing for us. But it does block all of that off, meaning that if we want to study x-ray astronomy or ultraviolet astronomy or any of those other ones, we need to get those objects up into space which is one of the reasons we've been very limited for a long time. It's only been, what, the last 50, 60 years now that we've been able to put a satellite up into space. And more recently, we've been put up the proper types of telescopes to be able to observe these different types of radiation. So now we have telescopes that have been up that study gamma rays. We have studied x-rays. Um, number of ultraviolet telescopes have been up. 
Infrared, again, some of those have been uh, put up in space too. Some of them are put in other places as I'll show you when we talk about telescopes. The other thing that was noted on there, and I'm going to go back to the other plot for just a second here, is that it's what we call a logarithmic plot, meaning that normally you go up every, every tick mark means one, right? Your count, when you're doing a graph, you go one, two, three, four, five. Well, when you're doing a logarithmic plot, you can squeeze a lot more in. But instead of going one, two, three, four, five, you go one, and then 10, and 100, and 1,000, and 10,000, and 100,000, and a million, or a tenth, and a hundredth, and a thousandth, and a ten thousandth, and a hundred thousandth, and one one millionth. So it's each of those little tick marks is a factor of ten. It's just a way to compress everything in instead of making a tremendously long scale. It lets you look at both the very large wavelengths that are the size of a mountain, and the very small wavelengths that are smaller than the atomic nucleus on the same type of graph. Otherwise, if you were trying to say, you know, that each tick mark was one of these units here, that thing would stretch out, you know, to the next star in order to be able to put it on the graph. But you do have to keep that in effect that it's not that things are, you know, twice as big as you go from one to the other, it's ten times from each, t- each tick mark to tick mark. And that's just what the bottom part here on, whoops, the bottom part is saying, really, it lets us look at the longer and shorter wavelengths at the same time. Question? Okay. So the big thing I wanted to bring here, and again, I'll come back to this in Chapter 3 when we talk about telescopes, is we're really only looking at a very small portion of the spectrum. and That's all we're used to looking at in astronomy. There's a lot more. We have that entire band of X-rays and gamma rays and infrared and ultraviolet and radio waves that for the first many thousands of years were not studied in astronomy. We weren't, weren't able to study some of them. We weren't able to really study them. We didn't have any kind of technology that would allow us to observe them. All right, thermal radiation. Thermal radiation is most of what we're going to talk about for this class. It's how stars work for the most part. This is, how, this is the type of radiation that stars emit. And it means that a, what we call a black body spectrum means that it, radiation emitted by the object depends only on its temperature. It doesn't depend on what it's made up of. It doesn't depend on where it is or how it's moving or anything else, but the type of radiation that we see depends only on the temperature of that object. And it gives you a curve something like this. So for very short wavelengths, it drops off very quickly. It peaks somewhere. If this were our sun, this would be the visible portion of the spectrum up here. And then for the very longer wavelengths, it drops down a little bit slower. But that's the type of curve. If you measure the radiation from a star, you get something like this. If you measure the radiation from a galaxy, normally you get something like this. Now there is a non-thermal radiation that we will come back to when we get to the chapters on galaxies, because there are some galaxies that do not behave like this, that emit a completely different type of spectrum. But for most of what we look look at in terms of stars, this is the type of spectrum that we will see. And again, it depends only on the temperature. Black body comes from the name because an ideal radiator like this of certain temperatures would look black. Because what a black body is, is it absorbs it absorbs all the light 
it absorbs all light, all light that hit it hits it. So if something comes to it, it absorbs the light. Doesn't matter what, what kind of radiation is, any kind of radiation coming to it gets absorbed by the black body radiator. And it emits radiation Oh, just one radiation, depending on temperature. So what type of radiation it, pri- it, it you see, it emits everything. It'll emit everything from radio waves to gamma rays. Where it emits most of it will just depend on exactly what its temperature is. For something like the sun, which would be a pretty good approximation to a black body, most of it is emitted in the visible. We say black body because something on Earth that would be a pretty good black body would be something like the countertop that's relatively dark. It's absorbing most of the radiation that's hitting it. And it is emitting radiation, but it's emitting radiation based on its temperature. Well, it's not 6,000 degrees like the sun. It's, you know, room temperature, maybe about 300 degrees. Kelvins, I'll go over that scale in just a minute. Maybe about 300 degrees on the scale that we use. And that emits, if you're that temperature, you emit infrared radiation. So anything that's emitting heat of any kind would glow in the infrared portion of the spectrum. So anything on Earth, we would be able to see that. But that's sort of the definition of what we mean by a black body spectrum. And again, it only has to do with that it's absorbing everything and emitting based on its temperature. So if it's something cooler, like the desktop, then it's going to, be, it's going to appear black to us. Now, I mentioned the Kelvin scale, and here it is. You're familiar with the Fahrenheit scale for temperature, where uh, water freezes at 32 and hydrogen fuses at 18 million and 32 degrees, right? No, you probably don't know the last one. You don't need to know the specific number either. And the Celsius scale, right? Water freezes at zero degrees, boils at 100 degrees. Astronomers, a lot of scientists use the Kelvin scale, in which water freezes at 273 degrees, and boils at 373 degrees. Why such an odd number? It makes more sense to use 0 and 100, doesn't it? Well, it depends on what you're trying to measure. In the Kelvin scale, and in in temperatures, what temperature is really measuring is motion. Temperature measures the motions of the particles. The faster the particles are moving, the higher the temperatures are. That means that if you could stop the particles, you keep slowing them down and slowing them down and slowing them down. Eventually, you could stop them. That would be a temperature. You couldn't go below that, right? You, if there's motion and there's no motion, you can't have negative motion, right? So there is, a, there is a very lowest temperature you can possibly reach where you would physically stop everything. Nothing would be moving. And that would be negative 273 degrees on the Celsius scale, negative 459 on the Fahrenheit scale. No matter how cold it gets here, and you feel how cold it gets, it doesn't get close to to those kind of temperatures. The Kelvin scale is set up so that all the numbers are positive. Zero is absolute, what we call absolute zero. As cold as you could possibly get, where all motion of particles would cease. So could you ever really get that cold? No, right now the temperature of space is about two or three, about, about three degrees Kelvin. So even out in the emptiness of space, there's still a temperature there. You can still you know, measure a temperature, and it's about 3 degrees. So 3 degrees Kelvin. So 3 degrees just slightly above this absolute zero, above the lowest temperature you could possibly get. 
So even in the depths of space, things are moving just very, very slowly. As you get further and further up, things move faster and faster and faster. But you'll see these numbers and most of the temperatures that I tend to give you, unless I specifically specify some other way, involve the Kelvin temperature scale. So if I say the sun is 6,000 degrees, that's 6,000 on the Kelvin scale. If I say that hydrogen fuses at about 10 million degrees, it's, on the Kel it's usually on the Kelvin scale. So, and as you'll see, if you get to high temperatures, these really don't make any difference. If you're talking about 10 million or 10,273 degrees, does it really matter? Does it really matter whether it's 79 degrees outside or 79.02 degrees? No, you're not going to notice the difference. So when you look at real big numbers, it doesn't make a difference. The numbers do change quite drastically when we look down at very low temperatures, and we'll look at those towards the end when we get out to sort of talking about the depths of space. But those are the numbers. Most of the temperatures that I'll give you will be in Kelvin's, Kelvin scales. All right, now radiation laws. Only two radiation laws, for this one at least. There's another set of radiation laws coming up where we do have three as compared to some of the others. But the first radiation law says that the peak wavelength, so where that peak of the spectrum is, depending on what kind of object you're looking at, where that peak is depends inversely on the temperature. So peak wavelength is proportional to 1 divided by the temperature. Little Sideways squiggly thing there just means proportional to. And that really means there's some other numbers in there. If you really want to do a calculation with it, you need more numbers. That's not what I need you to do. What I need you to know is that as the temperature gets bigger and bigger, as this gets larger, the peak wavelength gets smaller and smaller. That's the number that you need. That's what you need to know on this. So if you get a real big temperature, real high temperature, real hot object, the wavelength of the peak is going to be shifted towards much shorter wavelengths. That's what the diagram here is showing you. You're looking at an object that's very cool on the top, maybe only a few degrees, about 60 degrees Kelvin. The peak is way off beyond the red, way off down there to the you know, microwaves and radio part of the spectrum. As you can tell, it's a very dark area. It's nothing we can really see. As you heat it up a little bit and move out into the infrared, at about 600 degrees, 600 Kelvin. It gets closer. You get some visible light. We can actually see something there now you know, in the visible part of the spectrum, but it actually glows brightest in the infrared. If you go about 10 times larger, about 6,000 degrees, that's about the sun, and you're peaking right in the visible portion of the spectrum. So that wavelength is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Where the peak is, gets shorter. You get to a very hot object, something that's 60,000 degrees, 10 times hotter than the sun. It still emits visible light, but it emits a lot more light in the ultraviolet portion of the spectrum. So it's shifted off even further. So the first radiation law really just says that the peak wavelength is proportional to 1 over the temperature. And this, since I think I mentioned it this way in your homework, this is what we call Wien's Law. Just says that the peak wavelength is, depends on the temperature and as the temperature gets bigger, so if the temperature is twice as big, then the wavelength is going to be half the size. It's going to get half as short. 
If the pre wavelength is, if the temperature cools off and you go to half the temperature, then your wavelength is going to get twice as long. So that's the numbers that you need to, that's what you need to know for that one. Yes, there are some other terms that you can put in to actually do calculations. And if I give you a temperature, you can get a wavelength. But, and I think I might even ask you to do that in the one. Yeah. Now, there is one where you do it, but the numbers are actually in your book. You can get those to do one calculation. But for like an exam or a quiz, that's the only kind of thing I would ask you is this type of, this type of force question on it. Now, the other radiation law is called the Stefan-Boltzmann law. I'll give you the... Which says, and again, you got a nice... Got a whole equation here that the energy, essentially, flux as it's called in this case, is equal to some constant times the fourth power of the temperature. The flux is just the energy, you can think of it as the energy, how much energy the star is putting out. It's really energy per unit area, but it's the amount of energy the star star or the object is putting out. And it depends on the temperature. The bigger the temperature, the more energy it's putting out, right? Makes sense. You got a real big hot object, it's going to be putting out a lot more energy than a very cool object. So if you had an object that was 3000 degrees or 3000 kelvins and you compare that, that's about the star Betelgeuse. And you had another star like the sun that was 6000 kelvins. Now, if they were really the same size, again, how much how much energy they're putting out per unit area? twice the temperature means that the energy is going to be 2 times 2 times 4 twos more. Right? 2 to the fourth power. So 2 times 2 times 2 times 2. It's twice as big. 2, 4, 8, 16 times. So that means that a star like the Sun for every square foot of its surface, puts out 16, more, 16 times more energy in that square foot than a star like Betelgeuse does. Except Betelgeuse is tremendously bright. And the reason is that Betelgeuse is also a gigantic star. Put Betelgeuse in the solar system, we'd be inside it. So it has a lot more area, so that's why it's so much brighter. But if you just look at each of those units of area, just because an object is an object that's twice in temperature, is not just twice as hot, I mean twice as much energy, not just four, not four times as much energy, but 16 times more energy. And we have temperatures we looked at already that go down you know, in the single digits in space. We have temperatures that go up a much hotter than that, that can go 10 or 100 times or 1,000 times hotter than that. You know, 1,000 times hotter than this would still not get to the temperature at the center of the sun. So we have a big range of temperatures, meaning there's a big range of energies. Again, you don't need to worry about the constant. I usually would ask something like this. I'd ask you to compare you know, two temperatures. And because it's a fourth power, I try not to give you anything too oddball. I'm not going to do you know, 17 times the temperature. So you got to do 17 times 17 times 17 times 17. can do it if you've got a calculator, probably. I can't do that one in my head. But you could figure it you could figure it out usually i try to stick with things like twos in this one just because it's a real nice number 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 people can usually take care of that 
That's the kind of thing I look for you to understand. But really it's this big thing that it's the fourth power of the temperature. So a little change in temperature makes a big difference in how much energy is being put out. It's one of the ways we know that the sun hasn't changed a whole lot in temperature over billions of years. Because if it changed, if it was 6,000 and then 5,000 and then 7,000 degrees, we'd be getting you know, extreme ice ages, extreme, getting burned, all the atmosphere would getting burned off because the, the energy coming from it would change drastically. So we know that the sun has been very, very constant in energy for many billions of years. All right, spectroscopy. Big tool in astronomy. This is sort of a diagram sketching out what a spectroscope does. And we'll look at a couple of these. Take a light source, here in this case a light bulb, but you could also look at you know, a star. Would do the same thing. You know, take part of the light through a little slit here. Send that through a prism. Prism does what? Spreads the light out into the colors of the rainbow. So you go from white light, little band of white light, and you split it out, everything red through violet. You've got a little lens there to focus it, bring everything to a focus. And then you have your screen here to look at it, or some kind of detector, some kind of device that can record that. You know, a camera could be taking a picture of that and collecting the light. So the red light gets bent a little bit less, and it gets focused on one side. The blue light gets bent a little bit more, and it gets focused on the other side. So we'll see all, you see all the difference of light gets spread out, and we can then study the spectrum. Now again, that's just the optical light spectrum. Really, you can do this with almost any wavelength. You can do this in the infrared. You can do this in the ultraviolet. If you're doing it up in space, you know, there's a lot more that goes on out here that we can't see on the Earth. And there's more that goes on on this side to help us better be able to study it. But what we want to do is really to split that up into as much detail as we can see. And we can learn a lot of things from the spectrum. Because depending on what you look at, you can get different types of spectra. We showed you the one, we showed you the rainbow, right? That's what you're used to seeing. If you put things in a spectrum, you see, you see the rainbow. When we look at certain types of uh, objects, in this case a heated cloud of hydrogen gas, you know, not a real dense one, not a solid object, not a star, just a cloud of gas in space, it is something quite different when you put it through the same type of um, device. I've taken out some of the stuff there just to uh, simplify the picture, though everything else would still normally be there. But you put this light through the prism. Instead of getting an entire spectrum, you get only very specific what we call emission lines. So you see a bright line in the red, in the green, in the blue, in the violet, and that's it. There's nothing in between them. It's blank in between them. There's nothing there. So when we look at an element, a certain element, if we're looking at just hydrogen and we're looking for hydrogen in space, we can actually tell what's there by looking at this pattern of lines. And that's what we're going to be working on for most of the rest of this chapter is looking at how we can break apart and study those lines to learn things about space, to learn what's really out there and what we can observe. So this is one way that I can tell because again, I can't go get that star and bring it in and bring a piece of it and tell me what it's made up of. I can't go get a piece of the sun, bring it into the laboratory and say, okay, it's got so much hydrogen, helium, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, neon, or uranium, or gold, whatever. I have to rely on something like this. I have to rely on the lines that come from it in order to understand what anything is made up of. So here's an example. 
that we can use these to identify. There's hydrogen back there up at the top. You can see all the hydrogen lines. Sodium, little different. Sodium has in the visible portion of the spectrum a couple bright yellow lines and not much else. Helium, looks a little bit like hydrogen. Got a nice bright red line and some down here in the blue. Slightly different pattern but it does have a bright yellow line. Neon, again, a lot of you've seen neon lights. Neon lights glow, glow a lot in the red. Red and yellow portion of the spectrum. That's where most of their lines are. Mercury, again, another different pattern. So what we can do is when we look at an object in space, if we look at the sun, we can look for that pattern of lines. If we see this exact pattern, that tells us hydrogen is there. If we see this pattern, we know there's sodium present. This tells helium, this tells neon, this tells us there's mercury there. So we can use this to study the sun, the stars, the galaxies, to actually learn about what these objects are made up of. Now, if I remember correctly, nope, next one, okay. It gets a little more complicated than that as I'll show you in a minute. The other type of spectrum that we're used to seeing is more like this is the spectrum we see from the sun. A little bit more complicated, not as nice and easy to see as those emission lines, they're absorption. So what you're looking at here is you see, here's your star, here's a cloud of gas, maybe the atmosphere of the star, maybe something in between us and the star. So you have this light, this hot star is producing a continuous spectrum. When it goes through its atmosphere or through a cloud of gas between us and the star, that cloud absorbs out certain bits of radiation and only those same bits that it likes to emit. So if you look here and you can see the absorption lines are in the red, in the green, and in the blue and the violet for hydrogen. So in this case, instead of seeing just bright lines standing out at you, you're seeing a nice continuous spectrum, but certain wavelengths are taken away. Certain ones have been absorbed out by that hydrogen gas. So in that case, if an astronomer looked at this spectrum, they'd say that gas cloud that we're looking at wherever it is, is actually composed of hydrogen. Now you might get more than one element in them, so it might not quite be so simple that you just see, you know, oh, hydrogen lines, I know I've got hydrogen. Helium lines, I know I've got helium. Carbon lines, I know I have carbon. You can actually get, you know, a mixture. You know, maybe something is made up of hydrogen and helium, in which case you would see not just this, but you'd see this and this on top of each other. So you'd see a more complicated pattern of lines. And it gets pretty bad if you're looking at the sun. You can find 91 elements in the sun. 91 out of 92 naturally occurring elements. There's one naturally occurring element, number 43, which is not stable and does not exist in long, is only not really visible. So, but everything else, you can find it in the sun. So you can find hydrogen, you can find helium, you can find carbon, you can find oxygen, neon, gold, platinum, uranium. Everything is there in the sun and there it is. The entire solar spectrum from the very deepest red to, the, to almost into the ultraviolet. Makes it a little bit harder to be able to pick things out. You know, there's this nice big one, there's the hydrogen line, that red line of hydrogen. Only know because it's one of the strongest ones because the sun has a lot of hydrogen. But astronomers can take and work with this type of thing and actually decipher not only how, what elements are present, but how much of each element is present. So you can be able to tell how much, not how much hydrogen is there, how much helium is there, how much gold is there in the sun. You know, 
take all the gold out of the sun and get it together, you can make a solid gold earth. How you're going to get it out of there? Good question. You know, if you can figure that out, you can, you know, there's, there's a lot of money sitting there. There's a lot of gold, a lot of platinum in the sun. But it's locked up. It's even better than you know, Fort Knox. There's no way to get to it. There is no way to get that out of there. But it's there. You could find gold. You can find platinum. You can find carbon, iron, anything else is present in the solar spectrum. But just to give you the idea, I gave you some nice simple ones. It's really a lot more complicated than that to really be able to determine what's going on, what's going on in the sun. Now, last thing I wanted to hit for today is Kirchhoff's laws. So we're back up to three laws here. And these just tell us when you're going to see each type of spectrum. And the first thing you see is that the first law says that a solid, liquid, or dense gas or a dense gas is, gives you a continuous spectrum. So if we heat up, heat up something that's solid, heat up a filament in a light bulb, it's going to give you a continuous spectrum. So you take a regular incandescent light bulb, heat it up, turn it on, take a, spect- take a spectrum of it, you know, look at that, split it up. One of the things I want to try to hopefully look at on Friday, give you a chance to look at, look at that continuous spectrum and see what is it you can, you can see, see a continuous spectrum. You just get everything from red through violet. And a solid or a liquid that's heated up or a very dense gas, that would be the sun. The sun isn't a solid, it's not really liquid, it's really an extremely dense gas. And that's where you'd get a continuous spectrum. Now the other things, that's, the, that's, the, that's most of the objects, right? That's most things are going to be solid, liquid, or dense gases, things you're used to on Earth. What we see a lot of them are, in space, there's a lot of low density gases, which gives us an emission spectrum. That's just the bright lines. So you see just that low density gas, if you see a low density gas of hydrogen, we looked at a couple slides ago, you're going to get an emission. You're going to get an emission spectrum. You see just those bright lines of hydrogen. So continuous spectrum, emission spectrum. The other one is the absorption spectrum. So how do you get an absorption spectrum? An absorption spectrum, you need a continuous source or a continuous spectrum source that strikes a cooler gas. A cool thin gas, that will give us an absorption spectrum. So a continuous spectrum source, something that's giving you a continuous spectrum, but you make it, you have it pass through a cooler gas as it goes, that will give you an absorption spectrum. That will absorb out those specific lines that we see. So I'm going to go ahead, because this goes on to details of Kirchhoff's laws, I'm going to stop with that for the exam. What I will do is, you might get something very basic on these three. I won't go through a lot of details because I'm going to go through a lot of explanation of that on Monday. But really I'll cover through section 2.4, that it's just the 2.5. We'll go through 2.5 up to here, but so there may be a mention of Kirchhoff's laws on the exam, but I, won't, I wouldn't give you a detailed 
Normally I'd give an essay question on it with something. I haven't gone over them enough for you yet. So you, won't get, you might get a multiple choice or true-false question with one of these, but I won't go beyond that for the, for the exam. So, Questions? Questions? We're all ready for the exam? No. Yeah. All right. Hopefully everybody else will be here Friday. See you then.